Hello, everybody, and welcome to Envitum Mortem, the Deadly Class podcast. We're going to be talking about the first issue of the Deadly Class comic book by Rick Remender and Wes Craig with uh, Lee Lowridge colors and Russ Wooten letters. Uh, I'm Russ, and if you uh, have heard my voice before, it was probably on uh, one of a number of other, number of other podcasts I do, including Archer Di- Archie Digest, a Riverdale podcast. Uh, and with me today are Naya and Nicole. Guys, uh, why don't you introduce yourselves? I'm Naya. Uh, I'm a big nerd, big comic guy. Um, and I, I mean, like Deadly Class was one of the first image series that I really read and got into. Um, so I'm very excited for the TV show. I really like the pilot and I'm here. I'm happy. I'm happy to talk about the comic. Hi, and I'm Nicole. Um, I am a super nerd and a writer and um, my journey to the Deadly Class comic actually is a weird and slightly twisty one, but um, let's just suffice to say that my to-read list is super long, and with the TV show coming out, might as well move this one up on the list. Makes sense. For me, it's funny. I uh, I remember covering the Image Expo. I, I write for comicbook.com in my day job, and I remember writing for about the Image Expo where Remender had, like, it seemed like 12 announcements. And I think that was when Low and Black Science and Deadly Class and a bunch of stuff all got announced. I love Low so much. Oh, I know. Uh, and that was, that was the funny thing is that like, I've actually, I've stuck with Low pretty consistently throughout. Um, and, and uh, Deadly Class was one that I read the first few issues and I loved it. And then I just, I think it was because the, sh- the, the book fell off schedule. I just, I, I got so far behind. Uh, and then, Right around the time, uh, about probably six months ago, they were like, hey, do you want to come visit the set of the Deadly Class TV show and interview the cast? And I was like, oh, hell yeah. And so I I picked up everything that I hadn't read yet and kind of burned through it all in one weekend uh, Mm -hmm. so that I could have everything prepped by the time I got there. And uh, that that was a cool kind of surreal experience because uh, uh, you're sitting there in like a fully realized version of King's Dominion. And we were, we were doing our interviews in like, you know, the rec room basically. Uh, and, and so you're talking, and it, and it was mid production, So you had everybody who was still in wardrobe and like Lana Condor still had the tattoos on and you're just like, yep, nothing weird about this. Just like, <laughs> just cool. mainline two years worth of deadly class. And now I'm sitting in, sitting in the drawing room talking to Saya. That's <laughs> You're not really alone, though, in, like, mainlining that many of the comics, though, because for me, it was one of those things. I tend to be one. I'm not necessarily a completionist. I don't have to have every issue of something before I'll read it. Um, But I also tend to be one of those people who tries to force themselves into not binging. Um, I like to have a moment to digest what I'm doing with TV, with whatever, whenever possible. I like to either read it, think about it, then move to the next. And literally from the second you said, hey, are you up on Deadly Class? And I had to shamefully admit that I wasn't. Second, I picked up the first issue. I don't. I think I sat down and started reading at like midnight and did not stop until my phone's alarm was telling me, you're supposed to be getting out of bed now. Yeah. <laughs> the next day. And I'm like, oh, right then. So, yeah, I definitely mainlined everything that was available to me. Yeah, I don't I don't have your level of self-restraint. I'm like... <laughs> 
I go I go full on crackhead. Just read from first issue to latest issue. And I gotta know if there's tie-ins. I gotta know everything. I'm like I'm that guy, so I don't have any self restraint. Uh, see, uh, I uh, I grew up in the era of. Uh, I, I read Superman back during the whole death and return thing back when there was an ongoing story uh, that ran through four monthly books. So that basically every week there was a new chapter of like this same thing. And so to me, binging doesn't feel like a new, like post Netflix thing. It just feels like, like that's the way I consumed my favorite comics when I was a teenager. It was like the Superman books always felt like, you're reading either an event series or you're binging a TV season because that's just for whatever reason, the way that they were making them back then. And now that that's not a normal way for anybody to make pretty much any mainstream comic, uh, whenever I can sit down and kind of burn through a bunch of issues of something that I really like uh, for the first time in one sitting, I'm like, Oh man, this is great. <laughs> I think for me, the whole sit down and savor thing comes from um, when I was a kid, I lived in a very rural area. So comic books were not something that was were easily available. And on top of that, there was this additional stigma of you're a girl. Why are you doing this? Yeah. Um, to an extent there still kind of is within like the people who are closest to me. I, some of my father's Christmas presents to me over the years have been highly entertaining with his lack of understanding. Um, but for me, it was like, I might get an issue of something. And even though the next issue was coming out fairly quickly, it could be months or even years before I would get the next one. Yeah. So I trained myself to be like, I'm going to enjoy what I have while it's in front of me and not be thinking about the bigger picture. And that to an extent that's played to my favor because I love detail. Um, but yeah, that went out the window with deadly class. The book was just, it's just so good. Yeah. It, it, it's funny the, the way you describe it, it's very much like uh, the way that I experienced the walking dead, which is I, I, I didn't read the walking dead in the early days. And then I was uh, back in 2008, I was working at a comic book store in New York and Kirkman came to do a signing. And so uh, like the week that the week that he was coming, I sat down, I, I like bought everything digitally and anything that wasn't available digitally at the time, I, I had a trade or two, but I just, just burned through the entire thing up through the fall of the prison, which was actually at that time fairly new. I think he was doing a signing at, at forbidden planet in support of number 50. And so, uh, but it was that same kind of experience where it was just like, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm kind of sort of doing this for work, but yeah, you, I, I, of the like 40 issues I had to read, I think I read like 32 of them in one sitting. Cause it was just like, well, now I'm in it. I never, I never really got big into that, but I'm not really a huge zombie guy. That's why I never really got into. It. But I, I do have a couple of the of the volumes, and I've been planning to get into them, <clears throat> to get into the genre a bit. It's, you know, it's funny because you can see, you can. There's like a a weird DNA thread through so many image books that don't necessarily feel similar, but because these guys are all big admirers of one another. Mm-hmm. It's like there's a lot of Walking Dead influence in terms of storytelling in Deadly Class because Remender is a big fan of Kirkman's. And in turn, there's a bunch of uh, Savage Dragon influence in The Walking Dead because Robert Kirkman grew up uh, you know, right around the same time as me when Eric Larson was massively famous and, and Savage Dragon and Spawn were huge deals. 
it's it's funny because you actually when you when you listen to early interviews with Kirkman, he used to talk about how uh, he loved the fact that you know everybody in Savage Dragon ages in real time, and that eventually you you get to see you know the main character essentially age out of his role and his son starts to take over the book. And like, he thinks that one day maybe they'll get there with Carl. And I'm just like, wow, that was 10 years ago. And (laughs) (laughs) that's kind of the direction he's still generally pointed in. Although he doesn't, nothing unfolds in real time in the walking dead because they do so many wacky time jumps that it's, it's hard to, it would be hard for anybody to keep track of. Um, Go ahead. I was going to say, I always enjoyed hearing the story of how, he like lied about the aliens. Coming oh yeah, and he's just like, no, nah, no, nah, just it's just a zombie book. <laughs> yeah, well, and the that that story is great about the genesis of the Walking Dead. The other thing that I always really liked is because you know back in '68 the studio failed to properly copyright Night of the Living Dead. Um, originally, Kirkman thought that it would help him sell the book if he just called it Night of the Living Dead, and people could decide or like whether or not they wanted to take it as officially part of that universe, but that was the branding. And uh, somebody, I think Jim Valentino at image basically told him you're fucking nuts, man. Cause this book is really good and you won't be able to like, you won't be able to stop anybody making knockoff merch. Like you're taking advantage of something, but, but if the book takes off, they'll take advantage of you. And uh, all I could think is, Man, in hindsight, that was good advice when he's got a $3 billion franchise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Copyright's a tricky thing. It yeah. really is. Um, but, but going back to what I was trying to say earlier, um, your comment about how there's like this shared DNA mm-hmm. kind of across several image titles, um, just something I actually kind of had noticed when reading Deadly Class, but didn't really have, have a way to pinpoint it because it, there was something that felt familiar. Mm-hmm. About, the story is definitely not familiar. It's it is unique. It is its own entity. But there were definitely things about it that kind of felt like, oh, it, this is comfortable. This feels familiar to me. It's not completely 100% like strange. And yeah. now that you're talking about like, the, oh, well, they're all fans of each other. So there are different influences. It makes complete and total sense. And now I'm going to be looking deeper into other image things to kind of see. That's where I'm getting to my familiarity. But yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, why don't we uh, jump in? I'm going to do a quick rundown of kind of the events of uh, Deadly Class number one for the people who are listening. Uh, A lot of people, I assume, read this for the first time in trade or haven't read the first issue in a long time. And since we're going to be limiting our conversation just to that first issue, I figure I will I will try to uh, run through it real quick. And that way we have a a little bit more of a a focus for what you're thinking about. the first issue kicks off in January 1987 in San Francisco. Uh, we we start out outside of the wreckage of the Sunset Orphanage or Boys Home, and you get a lot of monologuing that's basically everything is awful. And eventually it pinpoints to a homeless kid who's uh, panhandling not far from the orphanage. Meanwhile, he hears uh, these two guys go past him who don't give him any, any money, ignore him, and are talking about all the money that they make. This goes on for a little bit, and it's basically, I think, a, a, a bit of a commentary on the 80s and the, the whole greed is good uh, ethos. 
But uh, we then get a little bit of, back, of backstory from this character who's Marcus. He's the lead character in the book. And Marcus thinks back to the day his parents died and his whole life changed. And it was uh, somebody jumped off of the Golden Gate Bridge and uh, landed on his parents right in front of him. So he wakes up. There's somebody trying to rob him. Uh, He chases the person down and uh, is about to beat this old man to death, but sees essentially that the old man is just desperate for anything. He gives the guy his shoes and continues on to where he himself stands on the edge of a bridge, ready to jump. But he's stopped by uh, a a mysterious voice. Uh, You only see this woman's lips and her tattooed arm that say, don't. The next thing you see, it jumps to November and uh, you see this woman in uh, Dia de los Muertos makeup. You see Marcus work, weaving his way through a crowd. And then you see that same girl with the tattoos and he sees her and starts trying to chase her down. <laughs> Meanwhile, the police are after Marcus and people in the crowd are warning him that he needs to move, that it's a sting. The police start to move in on him and various kids in the crowd, including the girl in the makeup, uh, do things to prevent the cops from finding him. He works his way into an arcade, uh, sees some people there that will come up later. And then out the back door, sees the girl with the tattoos again. She's on a motorcycle and tells him to come along. There's a chase. And at the end of it, uh, Marcus ends up facing down a gun. But uh, rather than get, get shot, he, uh, he watches the girl with the tattoo slice the guy in half and then ends up with a bag over his head where he's brought to uh, Master Lin and uh, introduced to uh, the, the School for the Deadly Arts, which is King's Dominion, the, the setting of the book. Uh, I'm going to stop there mostly because I'm as I'm walking through, I don't see a good break point. And so I'm wondering if I might have gone through all of issue one. I should have used a single issue instead of the uh, <laughs> instead of the trade. Yeah, you are roughly through the, the single the first issue. Okay. Um, and actually, I, I'm using the uh, the big ass hardcover, which is uh, handy because even though it, it doesn't end the uh, even though it doesn't end you know have obvious endpoints, what it does have is the script for the first issue in the back. Um, oh, cool. Uh, although that ends after nine pages, but uh, yeah, I remember. The first time I read this, again, it was part of kind of a big push to, at the time, it felt like kind of revitalize image, uh, very much like DC's Vertigo imprint. Um, image suffers from the fact that the comics industry is run by work for hire and that every few years, a lot of their good talent ends up over at Marvel or DC under exclusive contract creating, you know, Batman and X-Men. And so every few years you get kind of a new wave of books that are supposed to be the future of the publisher. 
And Deadly Class was one of those titles that I remember being really impressed with at the time, uh, right along the same veins as uh, I think Saga came out shortly before this. And, and, and there are a few of the books that came out through that period of time that are still around, but basically of the like, you know, 20 books that have come out that year from image, the ones that people still talk about are basically deadly class and saga and low. Uh, Yeah. I remember this is around the time I would say that I was getting a little bit, I'm not entirely sure what the word I want to use is, but I, I, I'd grown a little bit disconnected with a lot of <clears throat> superhero comics, mm-hmm. uh, Marvel and DC. I didn't really like the New 52 that much. Like there was just a lot of stuff going on. And, the, and I found myself, not that I never used to read like Vertigo, like I used to read Sandman and Why the Last mm-hmm. and stuff. Like I, I never only read um, superhero comics, but it was the majority of what I consumed for a long time as a kid from until now. And, and I remember like Deadly Class, being one of the first image things that I really read that that really, really resonated with me. I would say saga, maybe a little bit before that, but this really hit for me. And like, and I remember reading the first issue at first I was like, I don't know if I liked, if I liked the art style, but I, but I actually think it fits very well. Like Wes Craig did a great job. Yeah. And yeah, <clears throat> I think that Wes Craig took what was kind of a very popular uh, look for like vertigo at the time. Cause it feels a little bit like the, uh, the Invisibles, which is in general, I think you draw a lot of comparisons between Grant Morrison's The Invisibles and Deadly Class, but it feels like a lot of the art that you'd see in The Invisibles, except it's a little bit more, it's probably not anime inspired exactly, but it has that more, more kind of fully inked, fully realized feel that you see from animation. And mm-hmm. so if you compare it to similarly rough, faces and things like that that you see in at vertigo at the time this is kind of prettier and smoother and so it feels a little more anime influenced Um, and I, i will say too the thing that really worked about his art for me is the fact that very much like john romita jr john romita jr is a guy who doesn't have the best like faces and a lot of his characters tend to look the same but his storytelling is just terrific. Like his action scenes are virtually unparalleled in the big two. And he can draw a lot of stuff that other people don't take time to get exactly right. You know, you look at the the chase sequence in here and the use of speed and the use of perspective and the use of layout and the fact that all of the cars and motorcycles look both interesting and engaging, but also look the way they're supposed to. Um <laughs> I think for me, like, because I'm kind of kind of person where it's like, I know some people that I've spoken to, they were a little bit not feeling the artwork. I like distinctive art. Mm-hmm. It sounds very distinctive to the point where like he can just, someone could he could just draw something and I know Wes Craig do this and I like yeah. and I could identify a style like that. And I think that the pages are well detailed to the backgrounds, right? And I th- I like that. Um, Generally, from a character just looking at them, you can generally get a general sense for what uh, like eth- ethnicity they are. For me, just mm-hmm. looking at them, and like I like that you can you can tell really easily just by looking. Yeah, which which is it's funny because it's a book where it is a diverse cast, and at first glance, uh, I think the one character who you don't necessarily get a beat on is Marcus. Like Marcus mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily come off as particularly Latino to me. 
which kind of carries over to Benjamin Wadsworth, the actor who plays him in the TV show, mm-hmm. where it's like casting wise, they kind of nailed that because he's a guy who has uh, like Latinx people in his family tree, but he does he he looks more like Marcus than he does quote unquote quote unquote a Latino guy. Yep. Uh, 100% on that. I think for me, artistically speaking, what I really noticed um, was less the actual art itself and more the use of color. Yeah. And by that I mean, like, the first issue itself isn't necessarily broken into chapters, but it is kind of broken into, like, little mini sections, and you see that really reflected in the colors. Like, as he's definitely reflecting, then there's also his current situation, and each section kind of has its own color tone and its own family, um, but also kind of corresponds a little bit with the seasons and the way things look in San Francisco. I have a little firsthand experience living there. So like when you get to the part that's February and everything is kind of this muted, almost like a green gray kind of warm, but not really very unfriendly and uninviting, which matches not only the tone of the scene, that's also very much what San Francisco is like in February. Um, so you definitely get this like feeling. It's the colors are definitely communicating both story and reality to you at the same time. Mm-hmm. But what, really really struck me in terms of color with this first issue is everything is kind of monochromatic until you get to that scene in November in the mission. All of the colors that you've seen throughout the book kind of pop into that one page. Yeah. You see see the blue. You see that uncomfortable green-gray. You see all these things come to life. And in a sense, it's signaling that this is where the story is starting to come together. All the rest of this are just pieces of a bigger mural, and you're about to get this explosion of story, which is exactly what happens next. And I think that is just that's just a masterclass right there in how to use color to tell the story. Yeah, and I, I will say too, you building on that, the the last page, that last splash of introducing him to King's Dominion is almost emblematic of that journey because it's like it's a final page, it's a splash page, it's a big image. But also, uh, everything you've seen up to that point in the book has been, even even the pages where all the colors came together, everything was kind of, you're viewing each panel through a haze of a certain color. Mm-hmm. Whereas that last page, it's like, you're more or less looking at King's Dominion, like the brown on the ground is brown, the color of the building is the color of the building, and, and it's it's almost like, now you're in reality. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and again, kind of there's a sense of clarity that makes sense with Marcus later because Marcus kind of finds purpose once he arrives here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think all of that is done uh, subtextually uh, without putting it into the dialogue or without, it's funny because Marcus has a lot of voiceover in the book, but he doesn't voice over stuff like that. Right. Well, and also when you look at that final page, um, it's, it's less fragmented in terms of color. Like everything is fitting together. And, and I think in a sense, as you read the comics going forward, it's almost in a sense, kind of foreshadowing additional pieces of his story. Yeah. Um, in a very real way that you won't understand until you're getting there, but your brain is already kind of fitting it in. Um, and I thought that is a really cool thing to look at. And again, that's something you only really get when you binge it, but yeah. And, and I, is really important. I will say too, like big credit to Lowridge because again, glancing at the script for number one, uh, 
I'm sure he had discussions with Remender and with Wes about the colors, but the script pages that are published in the back of the book, Remender doesn't really talk about color. And so I'm assuming that a lot of these calls were made like obviously in concert with the creative team, but that Lowridge was the one who was, you know, making the game day call and then making sure that everybody was happy with it. Mm-hmm. So I have a question for you guys, like based on the first issue, what, which characters you guys naturally like kind of gravitate towards the most? I, you know, why don't you go first? I immediately gravitated towards Maria. Same. Instantaneously. And I think it's because that, that first piece of the November section is just so alive, especially for what the, the makeup or in terms of her face painting and mm-hmm. all of that. There's something about that that just screams off the page to me. And the second I saw that, I'm like, I really hope this character is not just window dressing. I need to see more of this. Yeah, it's funny because I I think that my like my storytelling brain, I gravitated towards Saya just because she's so heavily featured and because she gets all the Wolverine pages, you know? Yeah. Uh, and and so to me, like I wouldn't necessarily say that she was quote unquote my favorite character reading this, but like my takeaway after reading this first issue was like Saya is the person to watch. Uh, and very much like Dane, Jack Frost from uh, the invisibles. I feel like Marcus is mostly interesting because he is our point of view character, but he's kind of annoying sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, oh, yeah. I, was gonna say, I would like this if it were just Marcus. Like, if this I, were all Marcus all the time, yeah, I would have yeah. been a comic book in two issues. I, I'm trying to be charitable because I do like. Ultimately, he grows into a character who I like. Uh, but yeah, in in the beginning, like he's not a likable character, and so it's funny because your point of view character, the one who like storytelling wise, that the book is telling you your main character is this guy, and you're just like, fuck that guy. I want more of everybody else. Uh, which uh, it, it really works long-term because like I said, they can build him into something where you're just like, once you get to the point where you really like him and it's not just that you feel sorry for him, uh, it, they've, they've accomplished something, they've constructed something. But uh, in this first issue, it's, I remember kind of reading it and being like, so what's the arc here? Like, is this guy actually our main character or are we going to like follow the girl or like, is he only interesting because the girl wants him, you know? And so that was, uh, that was one of those things that I distinctly remember reading this book way back when. And then even when I started and, and re-binged the series, it was just like, yeah, like Marcus in the beginning is a hard sell. And, and you're right, Nicole. It's like, if, if this were Marcus's book, like if we spent, 18 of the 20 pages with him and didn't start to meet the other cast until the end of the issue, which of course is how like most big two comics would have paced this. Uh, It's like, I don't know if I would have been in it for number two. Yeah. I would have, I would have walked away and probably would have messaged you and be like, I'm a hard nope. Um, (laughs) But it it is a credit to us because realistically there's something very real life about that because every person you meet, first of all, be very open with everybody has a story. Um, but beyond that, like when you meet people, they don't always come off the way that they're going to be. And so he comes off as this kind of annoying, irritating, like, I don't care about your story. Yeah. But when you put it in context of other people whose stories you do care about, you start to see his humanity. And on a lot of levels, I think that is 
in a way, kind of a finger point to again in the eighties where you don't care about other people necessarily. Well, um, yeah. it, it just so interwoven that way that it creates this really rich story that you want to get to know Marcus better because of the people around him. Yeah, that's. I was gonna say, like, listening to you talk about that, I'm like, you know, there's a weird metatextual comment on the fact that like the two guys who pass him when he's panhandling, like they don't want to hear your story either, buddy. Like, mm-hmm. keep moving. Yeah, it's kind of like the writers are like, we we're, you, we all know that you readers are going to be those people right there. We know. We're there. <laughs> us, it'll be fine. And, you know, if you give it the book the credit, by the time you hit that, you know, hit where things come alive, it becomes repair. Okay, so there is something more here. But there's mm-hmm. also the flip side of that. Because Marcus' story becomes more worth sticking around for because of the other people, mm-hmm. other people's stories also become more valuable because of Marcus' story. And a lot of times when there's, and I hate to call this necessarily an ensemble cast of a book because we really are very rooted in Marcus's story. But a lot of times when there are books with a point of view character and then a lot of extras, you, you kind of lose that idea that the rest of the characters are also fully developed and fully realized people. Mm-hmm. And in Deadly Class, um, while we don't see that necessarily in the first issue as much, that is one of the huge strengths of the title overall. Um, you genuinely find yourself invested in all of the characters um, and at some level, maybe not as much, maybe not their, their favorite character or when something happens to them, you don't, you're like, okay, I'm fine with whatever. But this is a really good job of creating characters that you do want to know more about. So if an issue is more focused on say Marcus being whiny and annoying, you're still willing to give it a go and to keep going into the story. And I yeah. think that's a huge credit to, way this first issue sets it all up yeah i agree with like the fact that like the like that um seeing the characters and the way that they're presented like like for me like the way maria came through and she kind of like just blew that like dust and stuff and i was like kind of like okay yeah i hope she's like important too like kind of like and then willie just because willie's black so i like mm-hmm. i don't like, I, I like willie no matter almost <laughs> almost <laughs> but, but for me it was like Marcus was a little whiny for sure, but but like seeing the little bit of the little story we got with the Reagan stuff and like the the schizophrenic yeah. remember name that jumped off the um, whatever you're like you know it comes from somewhere so you want oh, yeah. you want to know you want to know more about it so it wasn't I know like uh, at first I'm like oh stop whining a little bit but I was like when you kind of like not to spoil it, I'm not to go into it but like when you know more about his past I feel like this, his viewpoint is completely justified oh yeah no, that's that's one of the great things and I think that. Like like Nicole was suggesting, I think it really was an intentional choice by the creative team to be like, uh, okay, look, we're going to make you feel sorry for this guy so that even though he's frustrating, like you care enough to hang on until you get to where you can really relate. Absolutely. And I also want to make a note here um, in terms of how Marcus is presented, because we're all talking about how he's whining and annoying, um, which is 100% true. Um, but also something kind of interesting to be noted. Um, one of my, I've had a, a wide range of experiences in my life because um, I have the old, but um, one of my previous professional experiences, I worked in a trauma environment um, in terms of people who had dealt with mental health issues, violence, domestic violence, really horrific experiences, like seeing a parent killed in front of them in some cases. Um, one of the things that, First of all, the whole note to how Reagan kind of botched the mental health system was like, hey, that's accurate. But 
Um, we see Marcus with all of his challenges. We see him as a homeless teen. We see him as this really irritating, annoying, frustrating character. Even when the guy's like, here, help yourself. And he's just like, yeah, whatever, I can help myself. That is so well done and so accurate that it is so real. Because that is exactly how many people have had those trauma experiences. Um, that's how they function through life. And there's something to be said about making Marcus irritating like that because you're also kind of getting a sneaky lesson as the story goes along that people who've experienced severe trauma like that, um, how they can grow and develop with given the right supports in the environment. Now, granted, in this case, the right support and environment for him is a school for us to have. Him. <laughs> it's a murder. I would not recommend because, you know, the most trauma-informed way of handling it. But, hey, it's the eight. We'll take yeah. it. But it's really beautifully done. And it's something that um, when you look at the kind of go back and you think about when they reveal his experience and you feel sorry for him, you also kind of have this light bulb of, oh, God, if I had had that, I'd be messed up, too. Oh, yeah. It totally makes sense. And it totally pays off. And it is brilliantly done. And I really like that they didn't make him a pitiable or likable character that you have a lot of empathy for. Because a lot of times victim trauma don't always come off as people you would have empathy for yeah uh one thing i will say about the the tv show because i i'm worried i'll forget it uh, by the time we get around to talking about the pilot uh there's i thought that the chase sequence in the tv show was really well done the one thing that i wish they could have done from the comics that didn't come through as much was the the dust that you were talking the maria is blowing the gas because i i understand why because like in comics, you can make that a cloud on on screen. It's not going to come off the same way. But I liked it because it was it was a really elegant way of making it look like, oh no, officer, I'm not trying to do anything. I am just blah blah blah. And and, just dancing. Yeah. Whereas in the in in the TV pilot, out of necessity, the like instigating incident is Billy hitting the guy with his skateboard, and it's like, well, there's no mistaking that that's what's going on here. They are helping him. Uh, and so there's, it's kind of this cool visual shorthand that only works in comics where it's, it's super subtle and you're not a hundred percent sure at first that they're quote unquote on his side, except that you're pretty sure they are. Uh, and, and so I'm kind of bummed that they couldn't find a way to bring that to life in the pilot. But again, it's such a small thing that I'm like, probably when we're talking about the show, we'll have other stuff to talk about. And I won't remember that I missed that. That was actually something that I had in my, in my notes about the pilot that wasn't a letdown, but it made me a little sad. Yeah. Um, you probably would have covered it. So when you weren't on the right track, you also spotted it. But I think that's also, like you said, it's, just, it's hard to translate that in comics. And it didn't take me out of the story. No, no, not at all. Not at all. But I did note in my head, oh, okay. It's mostly, mostly, no uh, as a comic book nerd, I just like pointing out the stuff where I'm like, you know why comics are awesome? It's because like moments like that really only work in comics. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't notice until like, because after I'd watched the pilot, I, I did a reread. Yeah. So anything that was, I guess, different, altered, or not, or omitted, then I noticed it after. But at the time, I was just really into the, to, into the pilot. I was like, oh no, I, I, it was the same for me. Like, I, I reread number one on the plane back or on the train back from New York City after New York Comic Con, and I was in the audience at New York Comic Con and saw the pilot back in October. Nice. And so it was literally like I, I reread the comic, you know, two nights later or something. And then I was like, Oh man, that, that was a nice beat. I would have liked to have seen that. Uh, so I, yeah, I, I do like, I do like, um, master Lynn's entrance though a lot. Cause I like master oh, yeah. a lot. So that was like one of my, actually he might've been my favorite. 
in the first episode itself. Not, but yeah, yeah. yeah. I like I'm him still mind blown that he's Wong. Yeah, um, I, I, I like. I like. Yeah, I'm the joke I, a hard time I make the joke that he was like, you know, the sanctum was unguarded, but he really is just going back to the kids' dominion because he got work to do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. It's you know, it's funny because uh, it's a bad I, day. I, I remember everybody. Uh, everybody when when they had that that Instagram picture that Benedict put up on Inst- or the picture he put up on Instagram of him with the weird like. Uh, plastic wig thing and they were like oh my god he's a scroll or there was all these like fan <laughs> theories about like all the crazy stuff that that could be happening with wong and like the day after that picture was taken he was on set in vancouver talking to us and i'm like oh wow you have hair <laughs> and that it, i'm like oh so that's like there's no big conspiracy theory it's not an avengers endgame spoiler it's literally that like he has too much hair to be Wong right now. So that's like a silicon wig. <laughs> I'm like, all those people who were like, oh my God, this is a huge thing. I'm like, no. <laughs> it's Turns literally... Out, no. It's unrelated. This is the stuff, yeah, this is the stuff you can get away with when the Russo brothers produce the TV show. So, <laughs> yeah, true. Very true. But... Uh, Wong is... Yeah. Uh, Wong I, is I, I do gotta say, I like Wong in the comic a lot, but... Again, I'm I'm really glad casting wise that they went with Benedict. He probably looks the least like the character uh-huh. from the from the comic, but at the same time, and, and we actually talked about this a little bit when we were on set. This is a this is a comic that is full of archetypes, and archetypes can easily turn into caricatures and stereotypes if you're not careful. And film is generally not great about making that transition. And so, uh, if you had like an old, you know, an old Asian man with a bushy mustache as your, as your headmaster, I feel like the odds are probably better than they are with Benedict Wong that you end up with a much more kind of stereotypical, like mm-hmm. Mr. Miyagi depiction. Um, and then, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just, uh, I was going to, and, and I like the fact that that was like, it also gives you the fact that he can do more physically and it's more, kind of compelling, I guess, because I do mm-hmm. think that in comics, you can have a 90 year old guy who is spry enough to do all this stuff and it doesn't look suspect. Mm. I like, I like it just because I like, I saw him and, and just because of anime air types and whatnot, I'm like, this is the badass old dude that will wreck anybody. If he said, yeah. Oh yeah. It was, it was like, like almost too easy to yeah. tell in that sense. So I like that with, with, um with Wong, it was kind of like, okay, they, I understand that he doesn't look how Lin looks in the comics, but you could still, in a sense, because he's an older guy, some of them might think, okay, this is old guy. Who's he to tell me what to do kind of thing? And he's like, no, yeah. I'll put you in your place. And now you have Wong, who's like a little big on the bigger side. He's not like, not a humongous or anything, but like he's on a bigger right, side. Yeah. Could this guy even really move like that? And you see in the first scene, puts the students right in the place. So it was like, okay, yeah. I like it. I was okay with it. I think I think that casting off is going to bring a new dimension to the character too. I mean, like you said, in the comics he's very much fits in the box um, in terms of again it's a comic set in the 80s of course you're going to have a mr miyagi like like asian guy um kind of factoring in there even just a visual reference um i think by casting benedict you you get so much richer opportunity especially since we want this you know ideally the, the series is going to go beyond so i think it's pretty cool yeah all right. Any any final uh, thoughts on the first issue of the comic? I thought that it was a 
for me, the, the, the color, like you said, really kind of brought everything together and, and leveled it up so that it was not, it didn't just feel like, you know, again, the invisibles, cause the invisibles shares a lot of DNA, especially in the first issue. There's a lot of stories that are very similar to Marcus's in terms of like the chosen one orphan. And uh, I felt like that, that this was a book where the supporting cast and the way that they used color really kind of elevated it to be like, Oh, this is a book to watch. Mm-hmm. And that was my biggest takeaway rereading it too. I guess, I guess like as a last note, I, it's just, it's kind of funny to me just because I kind of picked this up. I can't remember if it was during the end or after I finished reading a manga called like assassination classroom, which has kind of like a same, oh, yeah. a same kind of like, uh, idea behind it but i guess you know their own japanese take on it so like and i thought like this was just like a way better like way to do it so early class is awesome uh for me i i came i came for the promise of assassins and i stayed for a rich nuanced story that hit stayed a lot for of the drugs i'm joking, I'm joking. I, basically, yeah. <laughs> basically i stayed for the cerebral bug of a well-balanced story that knows its stuff approaches trauma correctly and uses a fantastic amount of diversity and color we're happy. I didn't. I mean, I, I came. I came for the assassins. I stayed for everything else. Yeah, and I, I will say, uh, just recently, in the time between when they released the pilot online and when we're recording now, they they dropped the uh, the solicitations for all the free comic book day stuff. And this year's image free comic book day book is going to be a deadly class story set in kind of year one, so that certain characters who are no longer with us, but who are going to be on the TV show will be represented in that comic and rereading the early stuff for this podcast. I'm like super excited to sit down and like reacquaint myself with some of those characters. Uh, Cause there, there's really like, uh, there are certain people who, you know, this is kind of like the walking dead in the sense that it's a very violent environment and not everybody makes it out. And there are certain characters who you kind of read this first issue and you're like, oh yeah, they're in it for the long haul. And then by 25, they're gone. No one, no one is safe. Yeah. <laughs> no one is so safe. I'm super phone, excited. No one's safe. Yeah. Yeah. All right, everybody. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks to the people listening. You can subscribe to us on Podbean. You can follow us on, uh, on Twitter. We're the deadly class pod. There's also our deadly class pod. No, the, uh, you can also go to deadlyclasspodcast.com and that'll bring you to our Podbean page. We will be on uh, Apple Music and Spotify in the next week or two. I just want to get a couple of episodes up first because that tends to improve your chances of being accepted. Uh, and why don't we go around the circle? We'll start with Naya. How can people uh, find you if they want to reach out to you on the wide world of webs? Uh, you could just follow me at uh, Lolita Zempai. Uh, it's L O. Shoot, shoot, L-I-T-A-Z-E-N-P-I-E. I never actually had to spell it out loud. Um, I mean, I'm just, I just, I talk about, um, you know, games, anime, comics, all that stuff. And I have a YouTube channel, which is Nia D. Hemmings. So you can, follow, you can subscribe there if you want. Um, I, You can actually find me on Twitter at Life in Polaroid, and it's spelled just like the camera. Um, I'm going to talk about all manner of nerdy things and because I'm, and as I told him the other day, I'm the weirdest person, you know, <laughs> and you can, you can follow me at Russ Burlingame, R U S S B U R L I N G A M E. That's really long and I'm not going to repeat it. So if you missed it, go to deadly class pod and I'm going to put all our handles in the bio after we get done recording this. 
And uh, yeah, if, if you go to my Twitter account, it'll take you to my other podcast. It'll take you to a page where you can look at all the stories I write for comicbook.com. And uh, more likely than not, there'll be some level of interface between my deadly class comic or my deadly class coverage for comic book and this podcast, because uh, a lot of the actors are already <clears throat> pretty aware of me because I, I, I did the set visit and then I did comic con and I said very nice things about the show. And so uh, I'm going to do my best to, to hassle some people into coming on talking on the podcast at some point in the future. So thanks everybody. And we'll be back uh, next week. Vita Mortem, the Deadly Class podcast, is part of the Emerald City Video Podcast Network. It's produced and edited by Russ Burlingame, that's me, and you can contact us at any time by writing to deadlyclasspodcast at gmail.com.